Have you heard the exciting news? On January 25th, 2023, Tammy Zonker is hosting her first annual and free virtual summit for you and 999 other fundraisers and nonprofit leaders. Transform 23, also known as Fundraising Transformation Virtual Summit, is hyper-focused on equipping fundraisers everywhere to take your fundraising to the next, next level. We've put together 10 wow-packed sessions with you in mind, led by 10 incredible forward-thinking experts to help you transform your fundraising in 2023 and beyond. And a special shout out to our transformation sponsor, The Giving Block. Now here's the thing, while it's free for you to attend, spots are limited. So go to fundraisingtransform.com transform23 and save your spot now. If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars, and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, Let's hear from Tammy. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I'm talking with my dear friend, Clay Buck. He is a 30-year fundraising veteran and has served in fundraising leadership roles at several nonprofits across the U.S., as well as senior consulting roles with some national firms, some big firms that you would recognize. He has experience in all aspects of fundraising, with a particular expertise in individual giving, strategic planning, copywriting and content development, and building the systems and infrastructure that support high-level results. Clay is the founder and principal of TCB Fundraising, an individual giving and fundraising communications consultancy based in Las Vegas. He's also the lead fundraising coach for iWave, helping to bring fundraising intelligence to all levels of philanthropy. He has been a CFRE, that's Certified Fundraising Executive, since 2010. He's an AFP Master Trainer and has completed the Certificate in Philanthropic Psychology with distinction from the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy. He teaches fundraising and strategic planning at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where he has been recognized with the Faculty Excellence Award. And he was just recently honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award from his AFP chapter in Las Vegas. All right, so here's what Clay's bio won't tell you. Clay is an amazing conference speaker. We have shared stages, and I've also been in his audience, literally moved to tears many times. Clay has a really big heart. He is a champion for fundraisers everywhere, He's super passionate about social good, diversity, equity, inclusion, and not in a philosophical kind of way, but a, in a put your money where your mouth is kind of way. Like he is the real deal. Clay, welcome to the show. 
Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management an online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. so much tammy and you hear your bio read back to you like that and you sort of go wow that's is that me because i'm i'm sitting here thinking of the many times i've been in your sessions and been moved by you and how inspired i have been and how much i've learned from you even before i started attempting to be a public speaker so this is a deep honor for me thank you oh well the privilege is mine for sure all right so we are both members of the mutual admiration society there we go Set. there we go that's no, we've got that settled yes good <laughs> <laughs> so Play. Some people fall into fundraising and mm. others choose the profession. Tell us how you got your start in fundraising and why you continue to work in fundraising and the nonprofit sector. Um, entropy? Uh, no. I, so both of my, and, and whenever I talk about data and systems, I always start with this. There is nothing in my background or my makeup that makes me a data person. I'm an actor. I started as an actor. I have two degrees in acting performance and had every intention of being a professional actor and going into academics. And like my second year of undergraduate, I got an internship at this tiny little theater, a summer stock theater in North Carolina and ran the box office. And then apparently I had some sort of aptitude for that kind of work. And they asked me back for seven seasons. Oh. And yeah, kid, 19 years old, right? What am I doing? And so ran the box office and was a member of the, the acting company. And it just never occurred to me that the, when people came into the box office and I'd sell them a ticket and go, and if you add $50 onto your ticket, you're supporting the work that we do, blah, blah, blah. The summer that our <laughs> rooftop air conditioner blew out in the middle of July in, one in of the Las hottest... Vegas? No, no, no. This was in North Carolina. Okay. Still this hot. Was in... Yeah, still hot. In the mountains of North Carolina, but it was one of the hottest summers on season. And I had to go over to the, the board chair's house and say, the air conditioner blew out. Could we ask you for a $10,000 gift to replace the... I did not know that that was a profession, right? It's just what you did. So fast forward, I finished my graduate degree. I moved to Chicago. I had $500 in my pocket. I'm going to be an actor. And very quickly realized that A, I hated auditioning professionally, and B, $500 in my pocket was not going to be enough to start this career. So because, and this is mid-90s, so computers are new, right? We were, we learned on typewriters and carbon, right? So had I, I had a little skill there. I signed up to be a temp just to keep money coming in. And the very first place they assigned me to was a nonprofit. And my very first day, they said, our grant writer just quit. Do you have any skill in writing? And I went, eh, maybe. They handed me this prospectus, and here's how you do it. And I wrote a grant, and they loved it, I guess, and hired me full time. And it wasn't until about a two, three months into the job that I went, oh, this is the same thing I was doing at that theater. So in a way, I kind of fell into it. And then in a way, it just sort of naturally progressed and early on discovered I had skills in it. They always tell you in actor training, if you find something you love more and can do better, go do it. So I did. 
I did focus the early part of my career in the performing arts because that was the way I could stay involved with my first love. And so most of my early experience was for theaters and performing arts organizations and so forth. But that's how I got into it and stayed in it and continue to stay in it because I believe in the power of what we get to do as fundraisers and that our work really does fuel good and that philanthropy doesn't happen without fundraisers. So it is a joy for me to continue to do. And the longer I go, the more I learn and the more I love of what we do and how we do it and why we do it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love all the twists and turns that you shared. So again, you've been fundraising for a long, long time now. As a fundraiser, what have been some of your proudest moments? That is a hard question for me to answer. And I almost position it in, in the same vein that I think of that question that we get in interviews all the time. What's the largest gift you've ever raised? I can't stand that question. And, and, and the reason I can't stand that particular question is I have never raised a large gift by myself that I could say, I raised X million dollars. Have I held a check for $30 million in my hands? Sure. Have I been a part of soliciting a hundred million? Absolutely. But it's always a part of teamwork and volunteer engagement and prospect development and all of those things working together. And I just don't love the idea that we place pressure on singling that credit out. So yes. I guess my proudest moments are those times when the team that I've been working on, the organization that I've been with has fulfilled a goal where we've hit the, the goal on a campaign because it meant we're going to build that new building. We're going to serve that new population, what, whatever it may be. I think the moments that stand out for me, and, as, and you know this as an annual fund kind of copywriter person, that proudest moment is always when your appeal goes out and you get the first gift. Whether it's 25 <laughs> yes. or 50 or 100, you're like, yes, the letter's out there and it's working, right? That's, that is always an adrenaline rush. And the letter in the envelope name match. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. In the converse of that, when the letter goes out and it's very quiet for too long and you just go, oh. I think the proudest moments for me, though, have been, well, let me tell you this story because this does stand out as a singular moment for me. I w was working for a youth services organization. We had a breakfast fundraiser. It was a big deal, high profile, small, about 250 people, very high profile. And we invited one of our youth, 13-year-old young woman who had been in the program for about five or six years, daughter of an immigrant from Eritrea, a single mom, the whole thing. And she got up and told her story about how when they arrived here, neither of them spoke any English. She came to our organization, got a mentor, got in school, blah, blah, blah. Now she was leading her class, all of, all of this stuff, all of the things. Yeah. And she told it in such a way that was just powerfully moving and beautiful. And then one of our board members got up to follow her and make the ask. And I was sitting at the table with her mother. And we, of course, had pledge cards on the table. And as he's making the ask, the mother reaches over and grabs the pledge card. And I, and I reached over and I said, no, 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 you are our guest. It is our honor. We are grateful to you for, for allowing her to speak, for sharing your story. It is meaningful yeah. that you are here. This is not at all required of you. And she looked at me with huge tears in her eyes and said, Clay, who am I to accept this help without also providing it for others? Mm. To, All right. That, so now I'm crying again. Yes. You're, <laughs> me Clay, too. you are my onion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And it just, that to me, and I was, goodness, this was five, six years ago. So I was not a new fundraiser by any stretch of the imagination. 
But it just was this moment that just hit me how powerful this work we do is and how important it is that we be open to who we're including and who we're inviting into and being a part of. And that even the people we serve want to serve others. And just that that powerful dynamic that it's not just a revenue exchange based on an ask. It is philanthropy giving this work is this powerful dynamic. What's the word that I'm looking for? Not vortex, but energy of energy exchange and passion exchange and all of that. So I don't know that was a proud moment, but it was a profound moment. Yeah, I love that. And you make such a a valid point. And I totally agree. Who are we? to exclude anyone or to judge who may or may not be in a position Mm -hmm. to give. Mm -hmm. It's that advice that we get whenever we go through periods of crisis, whenever we go through periods of economic uncertainty, political decision, and we hear all of that, oh, we shouldn't ask now. It wouldn't be appropriate. Stop making decisions for your donors and stop making decisions for your communities that sure, we can throw all the demographics in the world at and say, this community can't give because of their economic status. This community can't give because what it is not our place to make those decisions for them. It is our place to make the invitation and the opportunity open to them, I, mm-hmm. I think. And I'm late coming in my career to that. I wish I had come to that much, much earlier. But I, I do think that's where we are as as a sector now. I think we're being called to that question of let's stop making decisions for our donors. Let's make the invitation and the opportunities for philanthropy open to everybody who wishes to be a part of it. Yes. And I'm a firm believer that people will give whatever they have in abundance. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Regardless of the regardless of the situation. I mean. We're probably drifting from where you wanted to go, but I did warn you, and you know this about me. Look at the ways Giving Tuesday published a report in mid-2022 called the Generosity Ecosystem. And what they looked at was not just the traditional things that we look at of how people are giving dollars, but how they're giving in other ways. And what they saw worldwide is that most people are giving in more ways than just money volunteering, advocacy, giving of things, right? Not just taking a bunch of unwanted old stuff down to goodwill, but giving of things to people. And all of this, we're seeing now these trends in mutual aid and direct support where people are giving directly to people and all of these ways of, and I'm going to call it philanthropy, loving of our fellow humankind. These are falling off of our radar of traditional measurement systems. They don't get shown when you pull a report that's based on tax history or 990s or anything like that. It's it's this vast ecosystem of generosity that I think it is our job to be a part of. And yes, our very traditional standard ways do that, but let us also be open to seeing and acknowledging that fundamentally, fundamentally, people want to help and they want to do good. And they are doing good in thousands of ways that we may never see and don't hit our bottom line. But I think we're being called to celebrate 
right? Not just measure our goals, but to celebrate the generosity and the philanthropy and the power of human good. I love that and completely agree. Speaking of profound, transformative moments, I know you were recently invited to keynote National Mm -hmm. Philanthropy Day for the AFP Aloha chapter in Hawaii. And can I just say I'm totally jelly? Let me let me insert. Let, let me be clear. Wonderful opportunity. I had never been to Hawaii before, but it was work. I got yes. off the plane and started working, spent all day presenting it at a conference and then came back the next. So it was work, but there were some pretty lovely sunsets and some nice cocktails there, I will say. Yes, yes. And, and let me course correct. <laughs> I'm envious, not jealous. There we go. Okay, because Brene fair. Brown taught us if, when you read her work that Jealous means I would want to do that instead of you versus envious. I want to do that like you did. Oh, that's so again, another that. Wow. Okay. I'm keeping that one because that's good. It is. Yeah. Like I don't want to take anything away from you, but I'll have what he's having. Oh, Tammy, (laughs) Tammy, Tammy, Tammy. We're just going to have to go here. I know you haven't finished the question yet, but you've just helped me theologically because that's why the commandment is thou shalt not covet. Because because being covetous or je- or jealous says I want to do it instead of you. Wow. So, okay. All right. I'm, I'm sorry. 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 I interrupted. Oh, that is a Brittany Brown. I can't take credit for it, but I can definitely no. amplify it. Yeah. Good. Okay. Sorry. Okay. You were saying. So you were keynote in Hawaii for National Philanthropy Day, and you and I talked about that a little bit via email, and you said that you went as a teacher and came back as a humbled, flattened student. And you talked a little bit about the topic that you shared. So tell us about your keynote titled How to Be a Good Fundraising Ancestor. And then let's talk about the people you met and why this was such a transformative experience for you. I have to credit our friend Alice Ferris Mm. uh, for really introducing me to this this idea of, of how to be a good ancestor. And, and I have had conversations with many of, of I mean, this, this concept of being a good ancestor is prevalent in other cultures and other societies. And I, and I have been wanting to be sensitive to not appropriating something from another culture inappropriately, applying it appropriately and correctly. And, and I still fumble a bit uh, with it and I'm still working through what it means. So this is very often some of the sessions that I get to do are also me working out my think, right? <laughs> Um, yes. You know. so, so in the spirit of that, let's just say there's grace around this conversation. Let's ask for grace. There we go. There, there's a wonderful book. The, the author's name is Roman Kurznarik, K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C, called The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. It comes from the idea that everything that we do, we should be thinking about the impact on the seventh generation from that, right? And it really struck me in terms of fundraising, of posing this essential question from the good answer, what does the future need from us? Because we do tend to be, I'm an annual fund guy, right? We tend to focus on our needs today. And indeed, for many of us, the populations we serve, the need is critical right now. But when we think about fundraising and we think about this work that we do, how can we begin to apply the ideas of thinking to the next generation, to the seventh generation. And what does that mean for us as fundraisers? And a lot of it is, and again, I'm kind of summarizing from his work a bit, 
and from some other sources, but it's really about thinking about the legacy. It's really about planning who's going to be in the seat next. It's about thinking about what the needs are going to be a year or two or five or 10 years from now. And of course, I come to it from the systems approach because I spend a fair amount of time cleaning up systems that people have not nurtured and taken care of. And we don't know what these fund codes mean or these appeals mean, or the data is in terrible shape and how many fundraisers are so limited in what they can do because they've inherited a terrible, awfully managed database, Yeah. right? So how do we think about everything that we do in that long-term approach? So we're creating that legacy mindset. Um, we're approaching it when these are, these are the concepts to thinking long that come from some of these areas. This legacy mindset, what happens next? We approach it with a sense of humility. And there's a concept called cathedral thinking right? The cathedrals of Europe took generations to build. And the workers who laid the cornerstones knew that they were laying the, literally laying the foundation for a building that would be built after they had left this world. That's how long it took to build a cathedral. Acknowledging the horrible conditions in which they were done and forced indenture and all of that. How do we think about, even in our annual fund work, even in our day-to-day -day work, how do we think about that cathedral building that this donor I'm acquiring today right? What am I doing today to set the stage for this donor to fulfill their philanthropic desires well into the future and for this organization to benefit from that well into the future and ultimately for the beneficiaries who are coming next? Who's the next generation that we're going to have to serve? And so how do we approach all of that? It became very powerful for me because I didn't quite anticipate this in Hawaii specifically, which is the first time I had ever done this session, we have all heard about the tremendous hospitality of Hawaii. And I am so glad that I got to experience Hawaii, not as a tourist first, but connecting with people there. Because that hospitality, that aloha that we hear about is truly a driving force of philosophy. And every moment, every interaction with every person was welcoming and generous and just little things that I am sure took somebody time and intention and money to do, but felt and seemed effortless and genuine. And the whole day was just imbued with that spirit from every moment. And it wasn't about, do I have the right pastries on the table? Or it wasn't about, do we have the right tablecloths? Or do we have the right speaker gift? It was Everyone you met welcomed you, welcomed you warmly, expressed gratitude for your being there, knew something about you. And what I found from particularly from Native Hawaiians is how open they are and how willing and interested and needful they are of talking about the traditions of their culture mm -hmm. and bringing that culture forward. So the honor of receiving a lay is so much, so much more than just a, somebody is putting a wreath, what looks like a wreath to us, absolutely the wrong word, around your neck. But there is, the, it, it's how the lay is built and what flowers are used and what foliage is used has different significance. And based on your position or how they see you, the lay is tied differently. There's all of this. And they took the time to explain it as they did it and that men receive a different type of lay than women do. And the leaves that are, are, and how it's bound together is an indication of status and honor and all of these things. And I, I can't even get it right, but 
So interesting. It's fascinating, but to them, it's part of who they are. And they're so willing and so open to bringing you into it if you're open to it. And I am, I am grateful that my connection there, Jennifer Oyer, who's a brilliant fundraiser, brilliant consultant, a phenomenal leader in, in our sector. And Jennifer was truly gracious and Jennifer helped, helped me be ready for that. And it just, the day itself was just an openness to that. And I, I know I'm running long, I apologize, but I do have to share this story. They, they opened the day with a speaker who is a native Hawaiian, and she is a, a powerful moving force in championing native Hawaiian culture. And I work very hard to get Hawaiian names correctly. Her name is Hina Lei Moana Wong Kalu. She's also known as Kumu Hina, and she is the cultural attache and represents the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. Um, and she opened the day with a traditional Hawaiian chant, greeting, blessing of mm -hmm. the space and of the people. And it was one of those moments, it just started the day and it just set the mood exactly, and it set the space and, and almost said it in a way, this is a sacred space we are coming together to share. And then closed the day with what they called the final aloha. And here's the point that I'm getting to. She, she was a part of my morning session, which I appreciated. She closed the day with a, a summation and a thought of the day. And the last thing she said was, we have talked a lot, and I'm not saying this is exactly correct, but summarizing, she closed the day with, we have talked a lot about leadership and presence and how many fundraisers feel stressed and threatened and overworked and overburdened and unappreciated. And she said, I am not a fundraiser. I don't come from this sector, but what I have learned today is that you have power as fundraisers because you ready, Tammy? Ready. When you speak the words of giving into existence, you are speaking the power of aloha into existence. You are speaking into the universe, the invitation for people to be part of something bigger than of themselves and to do something powerful in the world. And that is your power that only you as fundraisers possess of speaking generosity into the world. Well, like literally goosebumps. Our friends at Bloomerang know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips. I sat there and openly wept at that statement. You speak the power of generosity into the world. Doesn't that reframe? Doesn't that completely change the way we think about the ask? That me, little old me, little old actor me had the power to speak the power of generosity into the world. You know, and I'm just, and at that moment, I'm like, I'm just done. Okay, that's it. My father, the Southern Baptist minister would have said, if that don't light your fire, your wood is wet. That is beautiful. Just so beautiful. that's, that is why it was such a profound day for yeah. me. So she, she set the table 
so beautifully My God, and yes. created the space. And you spoke into that about how to be a good fundraising ancestor. So what does it mean to be a good fundraising ancestor? I was going to ask, why does it matter? What the way that you've spoken about the seven generations, I really get why it matters. How do we do it? How do we, how do we do it when we are so bound and wound into the day-to-day goals? And that is the thing that stresses us. Um, and I think one of the, uh, I think one of the best advice and guidance I've seen in studying this and, and, and looking back on my career and talking with others is we have to lead from where we are. So no matter how tough the situation is, no matter how hard that relationship with the CEO or the board chair or the fundraising chair could be, and no matter your position in the organization, whether you are a brand new development coordinator or a chief development officer or a prospect researcher or whatever your role, what can you take on as being that voice of leadership? Because I promise you, ultimately, somebody will hear it, right? Ultimately, somebody will hear it if we keep talking good into it of, hey, I understand we're moving into this new CRM. We need to stop and pause and think about what the implications are for the people who sit in this chair next, right? I understand we need to increase this fundraising goal this year. And let's talk about what that looks like over five years. Really, in addition to our tough work, getting the day-to-day done and reaching this year's goals, bringing as much of that next step as we can. And for those of us that have been in the sector for a while, mentorship, 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 Mm, taking on that, whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be a formal mentorship structure, but whatever it is in encouraging younger people, encouraging new people that this is a profession, that it's valuable and that, that I want to help you make this and see this as a profession. And not that I want to teach you, but that I want to encourage you. Yes. And to be a guide to answer questions. And I'm not going to divulge my age, but I've been here a minute. And (laughs) thank you. Thanks, Clay. No, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying I've been here a minute or two, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And I still seek mentors. I do, too. Yeah, all the time. And so it's not even about seasoned professionals and young professionals. It's about who has a lived experience, who has an expertise, a perspective that I really want to learn from, that I really want to ask questions of, Mm -hmm. right? Those of us that have been here a minute... Let's also seek mentorship from younger people. Yes. Because it's very easy to say, oh, you've only been fundraising for a couple of years. Let me show you how it's done. And that's true, right? I do, I do want our, our, our new and younger generation of fundraisers to understand best practice. I also want to understand from them what they're seeing, what they're coming into, how they see this world right? And what they're bringing to the profession. So let us get mentorship and encouragement and from all areas, right? Yes, absolutely. And let's even look outside the sector. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 100%. 
And as you spoke about the beautiful blessing that was mm -hmm. set forth in the room and this really incredible message, it made me think, what if there was a message that about speaking the goal, speaking the transformation, speaking the generosity, that speaking it into being? What if there was? Maybe it's the blessing that you shared with us. Mm. Maybe it's a, a manifesto that you've created for yourself or even just a, a passage, a piece of poetry or a mission statement or something that moves and inspires you that keep, that could ground you in the work that needs to be done each day. And what if you read that aloud every morning? Mm. Or what about when you hit that speed bump? You're like, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to ground myself in what I'm committed to, and I'm going to come back at this. And I just love what you also said, Clay, about, yes, we are on a 12-month treadmill. Whether your fiscal year is January to December or some other quarter, start and end, we as a profession, it really is, with maybe the exception of our legacy, our plan-giving fundraisers. Sure. We really are hardwired for 12 months for short term. And I love asking the question, what's the impact a year out, five years out, 15, 20? I really think that's powerful. I don't know how to do this, Dean. We have to, as fundraisers, somehow get past the concept of fundraising as revenue generating. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I tell my students at UNLV, yes, but in the intro to fundraising class, right? Fundraising is about relationships. And that's the very first lesson. And the first two or three lessons in fundraising is about relationships. And then in about the fourth lesson, I go, okay, now what is fundraising about? And they go, relationships. And I go, uh-huh. And it's about relationships that give money because you can be out and around all day building relationships. And if you're not raising money, you're not fundraising, right? Yeah. And you don't have a job. Right. But the flip is also true. You can be out raising money all day and you're still not fundraising because you haven't built a relationship. Amen. How do we hold the concept that fundraising is about, and this really comes from Dr. Jen Shang and Dr. Adrian Sargent and that Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy and, and Philanthropic Psychology, that fundraising is about an identity and that that is our job. That is our privilege that we get to facilitate this exchange with people of realizing the, what they want to see in the world and providing help that's needed. How do we hold that idea and also that ideal, I should say, and also, and I have to raise X amount of money this year, right? And I really think that we have to be split brained about that. And I really think that we have to champion that shit with our leadership, right? Of, yes, I understand the goal and I am meeting with these five donors because they're not going to give this year or this today. It might be 18 months from now and the person who comes here next might continue this relationship. We've got to be holding these ideas simultaneously. Old movie. It doesn't feel old to me, but a few good men. Yes. Uh, Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Jack Nicholson. And there's a scene, and if you don't know the movie or the play, it started as a play by Aaron Sorkin. The fundamental premise is two Marines are on trial for killing one of fellow platoon members. Um, and Demi Moore 
and Tom Cruise are uh, defending them. And there's the scene in particular where Demi Moore continues to defend and defend and defend in their prep for this. And Kevin Pollack's character looked at her and he says, why do you love them so much? And she turns to the camera and it goes all soft focus and as only Demi Moore can. And she says, because they stand on a wall and every night they say, nothing's going to get you tonight. Not on my watch. I think that's what we get to do. I think fundraisers get to stand on a wall in between desperate need and the desire to create good. And we get to stand on that wall and facilitate that exchange and say, nothing's going to hurt you tonight. Not on my watch, right? So if I had insider encouragement or inspiration and I have used that, all right, I'm going to go stand on the wall, right? Yeah. That that's what I'm doing. And if that helps someone, then great, claim it, use it, because th that's how I see the work that we get. To. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I think that if we could take a breath and presence that and make that a practice, we'll see turnover within fundraising positions low. We'll see more people stay in the profession, which we so desperately need. need. Oh. And maybe just maybe will attract more people to the profession and not by accident, but on purpose because they're inspired. They're called to this work. Yeah. And it is work, but it's it is. such purpose-driven, meaningful work. And I do think to that end, many of us, again, those of us that have been here for a minute, we have to continue to convey this to our leadership. That is the biggest struggle that I see is with all due respect and love for CEOs and board members, getting this concept to them to help manage their fundraisers and lead their fundraisers in this way, that is the toughest part because I think the most important relationship internally, and this is a whole other podcast and a whole other argument, but I have, it's worked for my career. The most important relationship internally for the chief development officer is the CFO. Mm. Because if the CFO is on board with the money you're bringing in, you're good, right? Because they're saying, they're right, you're good. And some of the most powerful relationships I've had have been with finance people because we balance. If we could get this concept to and help leadership and help others understand that culture of philanthropy, what that really means. And yes, we'll hit our revenue goals, but we live in this space. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And if we can live that by example, if we're in a position where we have fundraisers or development professionals, regardless of the role, reporting to us. So when they're struggling, when they're falling behind mm -hmm. and a powerful alternative to coming down hard and performance improvement plan might be speaking encouragement mm -hmm. into them, mm -hmm. purpose into them. I was written up one time. I've forgotten this until you just mentioned that. I was written up one time in a leadership role by the CEO. And the complaint was that I praised my staff too much. And I was fortunately in a comfortable enough position at a stage of my life and my career where I could say to the CEO and to the HR director, thank you. I appreciate your feedback. I will absorb some things that you've said today that are important for me to hear. However, if you want to put me on a, a performance improvement plan and ultimately terminate me because I don't follow this instruction, then I will gladly accept that. Because I think more praise gets more results than more demanding. I think we need to look at how we measure metrics. Absolutely. Number of visits. Yes. All of those things. We do have to measure the tangible, 
But how do we, as Rent told us, how do we also measure in love? Mm-hmm. How do we also measure in that power of that moment that maybe meeting with this quote unquote $50 donor isn't worth our CEO's time or my time, quote unquote. You have no idea though what that could bring. Am I saying major gift officers should meet with $50 donors all the time? No, not at all. I am saying when you see that $50 donor that's been giving to you for 10 years off and on, and it comes to every event that somebody should like need different ways of measuring and looking at these things. Agreed. And I think retention is one of those ways. I mean, when someone stays with you, it is not always, but very frequently a measure of how satisfied, how well loved they feel. And the tricky part becomes sometimes that motivates certain behaviors within fundraising professionals, right? Like, oh, I don't want new donors added to my portfolio. I only want loyal donors added to my portfolio, right? Because again, we're trying to do good work and raise money and be successful in our roles. But sometimes those incentives, and to your point, those measurements are counterproductive. Sometimes those measurements force us into those transactional binary ideas. One of my new, not new, but I've really solidified it in the last three or four years that I've started to do when I do database audits is consistent, but not consecutive. When you look at donor behavior over five years and my true data nerd friends laugh at me when I say 10 years, but I look at 10 years if I can get it. What you find is a core group of donors who have been giving consistently for 10 years, but they don't fit any of our definitions. So they give two gifts in year one, and then they don't give for 18 months. And then they give three gifts and then they come to the gala and then they get to be giving Tuesday. And when you look at them over 10 years, you find, wow, this person has actually been really active. The trouble is they fall out of the binary year over year retention, or they fall out of the month direct mail poll. They don't hit those criteria. I worked with an organization recently. We identified about 500 of them. We were able to call about 10, 20. Here's the thing. They are all walking out around out there going, well, yeah, of course I support Acme Charities. That's who I am. That's what I do. That's what I believe in. They're out there thinking of themselves as a philanthropist, as a donor, as engaged with your organization. And we're over here stressing about the retention rate and our lapsed numbers. Yeah. But when you look at it, they believe we missed them because we're trying to fit them into our hole. So let's talk to donors the way they want to be. So what we found in particular with that group, they had never been asked for a recurring gift. So we pulled the data together and we went back and we said, hey, Tammy, you are one of our most loyal and generous donors. You have done more for this, for the people we serve than so many of our donors. And we just wanted to acknowledge that you've been giving to us for over 10 years and how grateful we are for that. We've noticed that you tend to give when clearly when it works best for you. And over the last two years, you've given about this amount. Would you consider committing to a quarterly recurring gift or a monthly recurring gift, which would allow you to give at the level you have been and also provide our beneficiaries with a steady knowledge of support? Just they responded hugely to it because we acknowledged what they were seeing of themselves as a loyal and generous donor and put it in ways that it worked for them and our systems could support. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the kind of thing that I mean when I say, can we measure differently? Can we look differently? Can we imbue this in some of our systems and processes? Yeah, really insightful. 
Thank you for sharing that, Clay. Really good. And you're right. We have like these lenses and these rules and they don't serve the relationship development. So we really do need to reimagine. Let's use what we know, right? We know retention yields, right? It's better ROI. It's better for the donors, better for the benefit, right? We know retention, but maybe we get a little zero focused on our year over year retention and what are we going to do? And are we doing gratitude for retention? Are we doing gratitude for, well, as, as Hina would say, for aloha, for the spirit of philanthropy, right? For this, are we doing gratitude because we are standing on the wall and bringing people together? Mm, So beautiful. So truly the call to action, I think, you know, there's much for us to learn, much for us to think about, to reimagine, to reevaluate, but really the call to action is to speak into the world, the change and the hope that we all need. Yeah. Yes. So beautiful. Clay, at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide just a little more value add for our listeners. Are okay. you game? Game. Let's do it. Okay. Awesome. What is the best fundraising advice you've ever received? You will never make any money in your career if you focus on annual fund. Because I went, oh, watch me. And it wasn't about making money. So it was a little disappointing advice, but that is the advice. When a mentor was encouraging me to me to go into major gifts and capital campaigns, I love the $50 donor. And -hmm. I've spent 30 years working with 50 and 100 and $250. And I've managed to keep a roof over my head. So I'll take that one. Awesome. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? Can I have two? Yeah. Okay, first, Designs in Fundraising, Harold J. Sy Seymour, 1967. It is still the seminal classic that defines the work that we do. I read it every every year, and everyone should have it on their shelves. It is still relevant today. And then second, Henry Nouwen's A Spirituality of Fundraising, uh, because in it he defines, he says, fundraising is expressing our mission and our vision in such a way that we invite others to participate with us. Yeah. I love Very that good. definition. Yeah. So we'll be sure to include links to those books in the yep. show notes. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess? Emotional maturity, resilience, creativity. Mm. What's your favorite fundraising tool or application? Microsoft Excel and VLOOKUPS. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Now this one might get you in a little trouble because I know you speak at a lot of conferences, but what is your favorite conference? Conference? Your favorite conference or even ongoing learning opportunity. I am and will always be a huge champion of AFP icon. Of course, I have to single out nonprofit storytelling conference. I get more from that every year and from that community. Truly, truly, truly. And lastly, knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? Find your confidence sooner. Find your confidence sooner. I really only found my confidence in about the last 10 years. And looking back on that young actor, right? Find your confidence sooner because it's there. You just don't know it. Yeah. Which really goes back to the blessing. Like, know that you have power. Clay, thank you for joining us. The pleasure is mine. Completely. Thank you. Yeah, our privilege. 
If you want to learn more about the incredible Clay Buck and TCB fundraising, we've included links in the show notes today. You'll also find links to the other resources that we've talked about. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag TheIntentionalFundraiser and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night, where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations, create a results-driven, donor-centric development plan, strengthen donor relationships, improve your donor retention rates, and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program, and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.